We're going to think through that passage in Acts together. Let me pray for us as we do that. Gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, these are your words and they are recorded for us and written to make us know you better. Lord, we pray that that would take place as we think about these things now. Work on us to live more for you, not only in our heads, but in our hearts and our lives. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Energy transition is a really hot topic at the moment. Uh, That shift from fossil fuels to renewable energy, it's a really big challenge. There's a lot of debate in the media, uh, among politicians, local and globally. We've got to think about how we're going to retain the benefits that we want from the, you know, really consumption of energy that we want to have to live lives the way we want to live them. But we also don't want to have overconsumption and we don't want to have increasing sort of side effects that can be really bad for our world. Energy transition is really significant, uh, but that's not the kind of energy transition I want to talk about today. I want to talk about a different kind of energy transition, one that is going on in this book of Acts. The people who follow Jesus clearly undergo some kind of energy transition, power transition, because they switch from the start of the book as timid, private and afraid to being incredibly bold and public in telling others about Jesus and living for him. And as we're going to see at the end of chapter four, it's not just the first disciples and the apostles, it's actually going to change the whole community. There's going to be this energy change take place in the community at the end of chapter four. But we've got to pick up the story so far and see how it is that we get this change, this transition. The book of Acts begins with Jesus risen from the dead, ascending into heaven and pouring out his spirit. This energy transition that we're going to look at begins with Jesus himself. Whereas previously he was physically present to his disciples, now he is not physically there. And while that might seem like a problem, Jesus' disciples don't believe it is at all. Jesus had risen to sit at the right hand of God, to be enthroned as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And now he had poured out his spirit to his disciples. And so this transition of Jesus rising and ascending and then sending out his spirit means that he is still physically, still spiritually present with his disciples. And they think that's better. They think that's wonderful. And in the previous few chapters, uh, Luke has been talking about how that played out among those apostles, especially in the fact that they boldly proclaimed Jesus even under the threat of persecution from the religious Jewish leadership. And now Luke draws our attention to how this transition is going to play out not so much among the leaders of the movement, but among the rank and file, among that growing group of people who have decided to follow Jesus. They've changed their mind about him. They recognize him as the Messiah, as the Christ, and they begin to follow in his ways. And what we see when this testimony of Jesus and this spirit of God begin to empower people and change people is that they become radically generous we see spirit-powered generosity. Have a look at it in verse 32. 
Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. And down, down at verse 34, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought them uh, and brought the proceeds of what was sold, they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. The whole group is beginning to see each other as family. They follow a common way, they have a common goal, they, they share at one heart. This is the work of God in their lives, and it results in them becoming radically generous. When was the last time you saw someone sell a piece of property and give all of the money away? That is a crazy thing to do. And yet you could understand someone doing it if if there were members of their family who were in desperate need, couldn't you? If you had a sister who was about to go bankrupt, if your brother had been scammed out of everything he owned, if your child was about to be evicted, if your parent was getting kicked out of a nursing home, that's when you do whatever it took. Because that's what family does. And this is how that first group of believers was treating one another. Whenever there was a need, someone would find a way to meet it. And it's astounding to me that they should be so generous because if we were to teleport one of these people into our present moment, into this congregation here... I suspect we would look at them as being quite poor. Certainly lacking in education and healthcare. Maybe maybe they own some land, sure, but but it's probably not much. We live much richer lives today than, than anyone did in those days. And yet the story of radical Christianity, both inside the community of believers, but also as you know, extended to others that actually gets repeated all through the history of the church. We've got to ask ourselves, what's the, what's the deep well from which those early Christians would drink from to live radically different lives, radically generous lives, even in the midst of poverty? What was it that drove them to care for each other so much, and not only for themselves but for others in their community, that within a few centuries there'd be a Roman emperor who who really did not like Christians at all, uh, and he said this, this is the quote from him, he said, those impious Galileans, that's what he called Christians because they followed Jesus of Galilee, those impious Galileans support our poor in addition to their own. What made them radically generous? Well, the answer was there for us in verse 33. I skipped over it as I read that story back to you. Verse 33. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. These people, these first Christians, they understood that Jesus was on the throne, that he had conquered death. And they knew that they had received from him wealth in every way that mattered, for they had God's favour, God's grace, not because they deserved it, but as a free and loving gift. And seeing themselves forgiven and loved and welcomed into God, they lived lives of forgiveness and love. And while it was certainly radical for them, given what they knew of Jesus, it was entirely rational and reasonable. 
And I think if we saw them as poor and us as rich, they'd, they'd say, you don't understand what God has done for me. Jesus is the Messiah. I'm going to inherit the earth. People became radically generous because the Spirit was at work in them. The Spirit was at work in the apostles preaching the word. The Spirit was at work in the believers. They believed it and lived it out in their life. And they flipped the world upside down. And you could call it a revolution, except this wasn't forced or coerced. And that's the way that revolutions tend to work, isn't it? If you want to change things, you take control and then you force people to do things differently. But this generosity, as we see in this passage, it wasn't forced or coerced. It wasn't a condition of entry. No, the condition of entry is you trust that Jesus is Lord and Christ. That's what Peter proclaimed at Pentecost just a few chapters ago. The phrase in our passage, they held everything in common, We shouldn't take that to mean that they had one big ledger and you sort of, when you became a Christian, you'd you'd sell everything and you'd bring all the money and there's just one big bank account. No, no, it meant that people considered everything they had was to share with others. The reason we know it wasn't forced communal sharing is because Peter's going to say in a moment to Ananias, when your land remained unsold, Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, were not the proceeds at your disposal? Plus, we're going to be introduced to this this new character in a book. Just, Just now in verse 36, Joseph, who becomes called Barnabas, he's going to play a really big role later in the story of the book of Acts. And he is commended here for giving his actions. He's remembered and commended for giving a piece of land. You don't commend someone if it's not, an option. That is, if it's a non-negotiable, you don't, you you just demand it of them. You don't remember it. It's just, it's just normal. And so if we call this a revolution, we also need to see that it's a revolution of revolutions because it's not forced or coerced. It was won not by power. It was won by the proclamation of a crucified Christ. The weakness of a person dying on the cross and then rising to life The generosity that came was a response to the grace of God. And this is what God wants for all his people as we live in a world powered by his spirit, energized by his spirit. That's the energy transition we need to get on board with. But before we get to that, let's have a look at the really hard part of the story we read. For we see this really severe response to the situation of Ananias and Sapphira in the start of Acts chapter 5. The way this story is presented, these these two people wanted the community around them to see them the way that they saw Barnabas. Have a look at what happened with Barnabas. It says, verse 36 in chapter 4, there was a Levite, a native of Cyprus, Joseph, to whom the apostles gave the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He sold a field that belonged to him, then brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So this Ananias and Sapphira see this happen and they too then decide they're going to sell a piece of land and they're going to bring the money to the apostles to be distributed among the needy. But their plan is to hold back some of the profits. Now I have so many questions about the mechanics of how this took place. You know, did they 
Did they make a pledge and then the land sold for heaps more than they thought they were going to get and, and so they sort of decided, oh, we should, we should maybe not give all of that money away or maybe this was just the plan all along? And how did Peter know what was going on for them? Did he have a Holy Spirit insight or was it just other, other people found out that you know, he knew the person who bought the land or something? It's so, it's so striking to me as well that they do something really generous as well. That is, even if they gave a quarter of what the land was worth, that's still something, right? That's still a lot of money. I have so many questions about this passage, but we only have what, what's been recorded for us. What is clear, though, is that the issue isn't the amount of money they brought. The issue is their intent. Their issue is that they wanted esteem. They wanted recognition. They, they were giving for selfish reasons. And while they wanted a commendation, what they get is a condemnation. It exposes that their gift was not the spirit-empowered generosity thing that was going on at the end of chapter 4. It was something much darker. Ananias, Peter asked in verse 3, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Normally in the book of Acts, it's the spirit that's going to fill someone or fill their heart so that people will speak boldly about Jesus or do some really good thing. Here, it's not the spirit of God that fills their heart, it's Satan. So that they will lie. And three hours later, Ananias' wife, Sapphira, she's given a final chance to admit the hypocrisy but she hasn't seen what's happened with her husband and she's still aiming to get that commendation, to get the glory she feels she deserves. Peter said to her, verse 8, tell me whether you and your husband sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. And again, Peter speaks with prophetic judgment. How is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Wow, this is hush. Now, this is a specific moment in history. Um, We shouldn't necessarily expect God to act like this in response to any and all hypocrisy within the church. Thankfully, he doesn't. Uh, But this story is recorded for us so that we can learn a lesson from this severe warning. And I see Ananias and Sapphira making two really deadly moves here. The first is that they mix up the order of the gospel and the way it's supposed to work in our lives. The Barnabas way, the spirit-empowered way, works like this. I'm forgiven, I'm accepted by God, and now I will give and support God's people, God's family. Ananias and Sapphira, they operate this way. They go, I will give and then I will be accepted. That is the work of the evil one. That's the Satan-powered generosity. They get the order wrong and they're thinking, I can just buy my way into this community. But the second mistake is is they confuse the church and God in the worst kind of possible way. They're thinking we'll give and then we'll be accepted. But whose acceptance 
do they want? They want the church's acceptance. They want the honour from people. They care about how others see them. They don't think about how God sees them or sees through them. At the same time, they don't realise that God is so aligned with his family, so aligned with his church, that to lie to the brothers and sisters of Jesus will be considered a lie to the spirit of Jesus. Peter says, you have attempted to deceive God's spirit. Why would you do that? Why would you lie to the Holy Spirit? And so they are exposed and condemned. Why did God choose to do it this way? I don't fully know why God chose to condemn them in that moment, but one big reason must be because this is the start of the people of God. This is the start of the Jesus movement, the church. And God cares about how this church is getting started and what kind of church he wants his people to be. The reason I think that is because It's in this verse after these things happen that it's the first time the word church is used in the book. Uh, The Greek word ecclesia, congregation, assembly, uh, comes up in verse 11. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard of these things. We're supposed to be learning the lesson. The generosity, the grace of God proclaimed in Jesus should have a profound effect where when we know the depths of our, our need for salvation we will, and that we've received it, we're going to live lives that have radically changed. The grace of God should be seen as wondrous but, but never taken lightly. And, you know, Sapphira's name, uh, Ananias and Sapphira, let's think about their names. Sapphira's name means beautiful. Ananias's name means the Lord is gracious. They want, like Barnabas had, they kind of want their name to be changed. They want something better than the beautiful grace of God. They don't rest in the beautiful grace of God like the community does at the end of chapter 4. No, they lie to God's people to try and gain some recognition. But God is so aligned with his people that to lie to them is to lie to the spirit. And so there's this really severe condemnation and a harsh lesson is learned by the church community. Spirit-empowered generosity can only work this way. You give because you are accepted. Ananias and Sapphira failed to get on board with the energy transition that was taking place around them. They're still operating their steam engine when the Tesla Cybertruck is available for purchase. God wanted his new community to to, to get out of the old way and get on with the new way. Uh, If they stick with the old way, you know, if we do that, if we stick with the old way, you know, we still might do some good things. Ananias and Sapphira still gave money, but they did it empowered not by the gospel and by the spirit. They did it powered by selfishness, self-promotion, ultimately Satan. Setting up systems within our church, if if this was the trajectory at the start, you know, we'd set up systems of false inclusion and exclusion where pretense is rewarded. No one wants to go to a church like that. Well, actually, sadly, we often do both go to those kinds of churches or want to be in those kinds of churches because 
That's just so much easier. And to give away a proportion and pretend it's the whole thing, that's an easy thing to do. And others will be inspired by your gift. There's no downside, it would seem. Except living in that old way and pretending to live in the new way undermines the community of God. It rejects what God offers in the gospel. As we see with Ananias and Sapphira, it's deadly. We must realise that old way has, is being replaced by the resurrection of Jesus, by the ascension of Jesus, by the gift of his spirit. We've got to get on board with the energy transition and get out of this mode of self-protection, self-aggrandizement. We've got to move towards genuine generosity. So let's think about how we apply this to ourselves. We could ask some hard questions about how we're living. Whose acceptance do you seek? On what basis do you gain it? Are we on the lookout for self-preservation and self-protection in a way that just doesn't fit with the truth that's on offer in Jesus? That I am accepted, that I am secure. And when I, when I am generous, am I really being generous or am I doing it to gain attention and notoriety as a generous person? And we shouldn't just be imagining these things for ourselves. We should be thinking about it, about it corporately. And I have no idea about your church and the different things that you do. This is my first time at St. Philip's. But what would it look like for your church to be more generous? Are we working towards that, that goal in verse 34 that there will not be a needy person among us? These are hard things to do. These are complex things to do, especially when we live in a wealthy community, perhaps when we live in a, in a welfare state uh, with, a, with a large kind of government intervention kinds of things. But we've got to be working to be more and more generous. What we can't do is avoid commending generosity. Like it would seem like there's a solution here that if we're worried about people being too positive uh, and getting too full of themselves, maybe the solution is we'll just we'll never thank anybody, we won't do any commendations of generosity. That doesn't fit with what we see here with Barnabas. It doesn't fit here with what, with what we see in other parts of the Bible as well. We should be thanking people for the work they do. We should be commending people when they're generous with their time or their money or their effort. That's part of what it means to live as a community. As much as we should want to guard against pride or hypocrisy, we should actually praise those who give generously, knowing, of course, that the generosity is based on not something that they're doing in and of themselves in that old way. No, no, it's, it's the work of the Spirit of God in their life. We should be thanking God for them. The other thing we should note is that in all of this, we have freedom. The Christian community isn't one of demanded, obligatory giving of everything you have. No, no, we still have an obligation to one another, but it's the obligation of being family to each other. And so there's freedom in how we meet one another's obligations, how we care for each other. Your stuff is yours. You yourself are your own. But you must remember your brother and sister in need and how they could benefit from you seeing yourself as a resource and seeing the things you have as resources to be shared. We've got to work out how to do that in freedom. And so some of us have got hard questions to ask of ourselves as we consider these things. 
Um, some of us will, will reflect and, and considering ourselves to be doing okay. Others might need to make corrections and give more. But wherever we land in our self-assessment, the other big thing this passage is showing us, isn't it, that God is the one who decides, that God is the one who judges, and God looks to the heart. And on the one hand, me saying that, you, that, that could be terrifying. I said before that Ananias and Sapphira really do something quite generous, even if they don't give everything they gave. Peter actually even sort of says they could have kept the money for themselves if they'd just been kind of honest about it. The sin was pretending they'd given everything when they hadn't. And God looked to the heart. And so even if on paper they were very generous and we're very generous, God knows why we're giving and God knows how much we can afford and it's terrifying to think that God's going to assess us. And yet on the other hand, the fact that God is the one doing this judgment and assessment, that's really actually very reassuring. For starters, it means that if I don't have that much to give and I give, even if no one else notices and it's not enough for anyone to really be thankful for it, God knows that that was a significant thing. It's reassuring to know that God is the one assessing these things. It also means that if I give money to someone uh, or to a mission organization and they absolutely waste it, I don't lose by being generous. God is looking to the heart of the giver. So even if you give money to BCA and they utterly squander it, BCA will not squander your money. I won't. Even if you give money to, I, I was just trying to think, like, should I trash another organization? I thought I probably shouldn't do that. No, if you give, whoever you give money to, whatever organization you give money to, even if they waste it, God will commend you for being a cheerful giver. He cares about your heart. He cares about what you are looking for. But the biggest reassurance in knowing that God is the one who decides and God looks to the heart is that God already knows the depths of your folly and your failing and your faults. And he's offered up Jesus. And he wants us to rest in his beautiful grace. And so we should never see generosity as some desperate attempt to pay back God for what we owe as if we ever could anyway. No, it's, it's simply God giving us opportunities to share in his generosity It's recognizing that we have no needs, no true needs that haven't been met in Jesus and living accordingly. And even when we don't live accordingly and don't do all that we should or could do, trusting in Jesus, owning our failings, we know that God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To finish, I want to ask a really very practical question, and it's this one. What are you going to do with your tax return? That's the sort of uh, secular calendar feast that's kind of coming up, right? The feast of tax return. Um, According to a quick Google search, the average tax return in Australia is 2,000, a tax refund, $2,800. I read that and I was like, I actually thought I was doing really well with my, like, you know, when I do my taxes and I got like a significant refund, I'm like, oh, no, that's just normal. That's what everyone kind of gets. That's an amazing amount of money, isn't it? An average amount, $2,800. What could you do in the freedom of the gospel of grace with a windfall like that? 
And maybe it's not a tax return coming up. Maybe, you know, you're downsizing your property or you're doing some other thing. Whatever windfall you might have, what could you do with a significant amount of money? But let's take the tax return as an example. $2,800, the average amount. Perhaps you have a debt that needs to be repaid and you should repay that. But then, you know, maybe there's someone in your church community who could use some extra support that you know they could help. Perhaps there's a, a local community need that you know you could meet. And if there isn't a local one, there are plenty of ones around our, around our city, around our country, internationally. Our world has a great need for more gospel workers, more churches, more pastors. There's wonderful organisations that evangelise non-Christians, that encourage those who know him, that get new churches going, that fund pastors to train and study and grow. Here's a thought. Imagine what your church could do if every single adult in a congregation, say, took $2,000 of their tax return in the next month and put that into the church bank account. That would be an amazing thing to have happen, wouldn't it? And what could the church do with that money? I mean, looking around the room, that's like you could, you could fund another staff member. You could seed plant a new church. That would be an amazing thing to do, to think about doing. What will you do with your tax return? Now, look, as a, as a person, I, I raise uh, support for my own work with the Australian Fellowship of Evangelical Students. As you know, I'm here with Bush Church Aid, uh, trying to sort of say thanks and, and encourage you to support them as well. I know there's heaps of ways to give. I know there's heaps of needs that we could meet. My encouragement to you is as we head into, you know, if you get a windfall, pick something important. And give generously. And give knowing that Jesus gave his all for us, that he died for us and that he is on the throne. He is Lord and Christ. And he is pouring out his spirit to take us out of that old way and bring us into the new way where we can be both bold but incredibly rational and reasonable in our generosity. So let me pray for us towards that end. Gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, thank you that you offer us in Jesus a new way to live, an energy transition that will take us out of selfishness and self-protection and help us to live boldly and radically for Jesus. Lord, enable us by your Spirit to be boldly generous. Help us to think about that practically in this current moment, Help us to keep thinking about these things and help us to honour you with the decisions that we make. In Jesus' name, amen.